Is there such thing as absolute truth? Also, why was Jesus so hard on the religious leaders during his ministry? And is Christianity a religion? We answered those questions and much more on today's podcast. I am joined by Church of the Eternally Secures, Brother Luke. What's up, my church brothers and sisters? It's Jordan, and I am back, of course, with my beanie. If you are new here, welcome. I put out new content every Thursday. Make sure that you like this video to help us in the algorithm. Subscribe and hit that bell notification. That way you can be notified of new content. Also share to help our ministry grow, and definitely comment below. I would love to hear your thoughts. You can also keep up with us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at rfchrist10, or you can even email me at revivalistforchrist at gmail.com. Guys, there's absolutely no time to waste in today's podcast, but I have to get going with a exciting announcement. I know I'm feeling like I'm saying that every week, but God is just that good. Um... So something very interesting happened. I had the opportunity to appear on Church of the Eternally Secures uh, panel uh, about a week and a half ago, but now I have become a full-time panelist, which means I will be on every Sunday, Wednesday, and Friday. Their schedule will be in the description box below. I hope to see you there. It's so funny because it wasn't even that long ago. It was just December where I was like begging and pleading with my handful of subscribers, like, please don't leave. I promise I'll get better because I was just learning all these things. And now here I am doing real collabs, being invited on um, other programs. It's just amazing. And seeing how God has worked in all this has truly been a blessing. So definitely check out Church of the Eternally Secure. As far as my other collaboration with Lena, I have finally gotten to touch base with her. She is doing well. Um, As you know from last week's podcast, she lives in Texas. So she was kind of, uh, she was hit pretty hard with that. But we are going to get back on track with our original collaboration with the discussion of can a Christian lose their salvation? I would be defending that a Christian cannot. She would be exploring the, or telling about her convictions of the doctrine of once saved, always saved. So we don't have an exact date for that, but hopefully we will roll that out before the end of March. Speaking of the end of March, don't forget on the last Wednesday is going to be our first worship Wednesday. If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and pull it out now. If you don't have your Bible due to being in transit or whatever, that is perfectly okay. There will be audio clippings and video clippings in this podcast. Also, there is going to be a link for a free online Bible or even a link to the Bible app in the description box below. And if you guys, for whatever reason, are having a problem getting your hands on an actual Bible... Uh, go ahead and send me an email again at revivalistforchrist at gmail.com and we will see what we can do. The Bible is the ultimate source of truth as well as the home of the gospel that saves found in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4. If you are unfamiliar with the gospel is or even if you know what it is but you just kind of like a refresher, go ahead and take a listen. This is the gospel message and I just pray that you will open your heart and let it change your life. 
We were fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God to declare his glory and reveal his majesty. The problem is that one of the angels of God wanted to be higher than God himself and therefore this angel was cast out of heaven, becoming the fallen angel, or as we know him, the devil. One day in the Garden of Eden, there was Adam and Eve, the first humans, and the fallen angel appeared to them in the form of a serpent and tempted them to sin against God, and they did, causing mankind to fall. God was angered and he casted Adam and Eve from the garden and told the serpent that he was going to send one who would crush the serpent's head and the serpent would bruise his heel. You have to understand that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and because of that we all deserve an eternal separation from God which is hell. But God loved the world so much that he became man and that man's name was Jesus Christ. Jesus lived a perfect and sinless life by fulfilling all the requirements of the law in order to become the perfect sacrifice for our sins. He was spat on, mocked, and beaten, and people even gambled over his clothes. He was whipped to the point where his flesh was torn from his body and a crown of thorns was crushed into his skull. He was then forced to carry his cross to the site where he would be nailed to it. Jesus then used his last bit of energy after hanging on the cross for several hours to say, it is finished. And then he commended his spirit to the Father. Jesus was then buried. But three days later, he rose from the grave, conquering sin and death. Don't you see? God passed the law that would cause the Jews to sentence his incarnate form to death. The law was the schoolmaster to lead us to Christ and allow us to see our need for a savior. The law was a shadow of good things to come. The promise came before the law. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. This is our savior. Now whosoever believes in Jesus Christ as your savior by trusting in his life, death, burial, and resurrection will be saved. He will take on your sin, and you will take on his imputed righteousness. This is the love of God, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Call out to him today. Confess him as your Lord. When you trust only in the blood of Jesus Christ to be your salvation from sin, you will be sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise as a down payment of guarantee of eternal life until the day of deliverance. The Holy Spirit is the seed of God which is planted in you by Jesus Christ through faith in Him. This is what allows you to be presented before a holy God as blameless. The Holy Spirit then baptizes you into the body of Christ, making you part of the ecclesia, meaning the church or the called out ones. Your heart will be circumcised and you will be sanctified, meaning you will be set apart from your flesh. We are eternally secure in him because he who begins a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. And daily we will work out our salvation with reverent fear and rejoice and trembling as we conform to the image of Jesus Christ. We become disciples of Jesus and that discipleship journey will look different for everyone. So do not compare yourself to other Christians, but only to Jesus Christ because he is the only standard we strive for. 
repent today that is to turn towards jesus do not let man deceive you into thinking that you must drop all your sins before you come to jesus jesus wants you to come just as you are because he came to call the sinners to repentance not the righteous those who are given to him by god and seek him he shall in no way cast out Stop clinging on to the branches of religion and instead come to know the true vine, that is Jesus Christ, because without him, there is no victory, there is no deliverance, and there is no healing. We can do nothing without him. He is our savior from the penalty of sin. He is our savior from the power of sin. And eventually he will be our savior from the presence of sin. He himself took on the penalty of your sin, that you would find forgiveness and redemption from your sin today. He desires a relationship with you, and heaven is waiting to rejoice when you turn to him. Receive the free gift of salvation today through faith in Jesus Christ, and enter through the narrow gate that leads to eternal life with your heavenly Father. Amen. Oh, God is so great, guys. So before we get started, I want to go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, I just want to thank you and praise you for the opportunities and blessings that have been present throughout this ministry. Lord, I pray for each viewer right now that they will be edified and that they will take away from this lesson what your spirit will lead them and edify them in their walk. I just pray, Lord, for the guidance and wisdom for everyone who is tuning in. I pray that this message will transform their lives. And if they have not reached out to you as their Lord and Savior, I pray that you will just speak to them now. We pray all this in your holy name. Amen. All right, guys, let's go ahead and dive into the word and be transformed. All right, guys, so I am joined by another great guest. We have the one, the only, Brother Luke from the Church of the Eternally Secure channel. Welcome to the podcast. Okay, brother. Thank you for inviting me. I'm excited to talk to you and uh, hello to everybody who's listening. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk to you too. We've had the chance to really get to know each other more recently and I've even appeared on your panel, which is super exciting. So thank you for having me. So it's kind of cool that we get to hop in and out of each other's platforms. So. Yes. Well, hopefully, uh, uh, not only will we uh, uh, work, work together, but grow together. Absolutely. I think that's something very important for all Christians to be able to do. So I always start every podcast by asking my guests, what is your favorite Bible verse? And why does that one mean so much to you? Okay. Um, now, I'm an evangelist, uh, first and foremost. Um, I mean, after all, um, you can teach people theology, uh, you can feed the hungry, uh, you can do all these wonderful works, but if someone doesn't uh, hear and believe the gospel, uh, all of that is, is wor worthless, I think. So the, really the first priority should be in the church is uh, sharing the good news and we know that uh, of all the people in the world who uh, identify themselves as some kind of a Christian, I call that Christendom, people who, who think are a Christian of some sort. 
uh, all those people, uh, I, I don't believe more than 10% of the people really believe uh, in the what I call Christianity that we find in the Bible. And, uh, and that is that uh, basically the main distinction is that we believe that salvation is not earned through personal merit, but it's received as a free gift from Jesus by grace alone, only because God's gracious through faith alone. And that means faith without any works required. And the faith must be entirely in Christ alone and nothing else. Uh, so th that is really what I would call biblical Christianity. And uh, so what's, what are the verses that, that really make that distinction? These are the verses that there's many of them I could, I could cite, but uh, I'll just quote this one. It, it says, um, uh, to, to the uh, one who worketh not, but believeth in the one who justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Uh, sorry, I don't have any, the address for that. I, I, I quote <laughs> verses all the time, I don't, but I don't memorize the addresses. I can get that for you in a second if you want it, though. But the, the, for, for years, I've used that verse to preach, uh, and I didn't really even uh, get it right, I don't think, uh, until maybe a, a couple of years ago. Uh, someone uh, had a different way of uh, looking at it, and I thought, wow, how did I miss that? I've always thought that that verse says, um, to the man that worketh not, well, that, that is an argument uh, uh, against the Lord shippers who say you have to have faith and works. So I would say if faith and works are required, explain this to me. This verse says to the man that worketh not, that means not one work at all, N not a single work is required. But, but believeth on the one who justifies the ungodly, that's believing in Jesus, uh, then his faith is counted as righteousness. Um, and I, I, I thought that was the, the correct way of understanding it. And I, I however, I, I've come to believe that in the context, we, uh, we should understand that when it says to the man that worketh not, well, we should understand that it, it really means to the man that is worketh not for his salvation. If uh, to someone who's not working for their salvation, but but uh, believes in the one who justified the ungodly, then, then that's the distinction. So um, we we have to understand that we're not working for our salvation. That's the key. And so there are many other verses that we can go to to uh, make the point that salvation is faith apart from works. But I think that's, uh, that's probably my, my favorite go-to verse for, for that. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so sad because you do see so many people in who would deem themselves as evangelicals and they say in Christ alone, through faith alone, by the grace of God alone, but yet they don't actually say that with their actions in their heart, which is very sad, which brings me to my next question, because your ministry is very big on this doctrine, as well as the doctrine of eternal security. Uh, after all, your ministry is called the Church of the Eternally Secure. You also have your own YouTube channel. So why don't you walk me a little bit through your online ministry calling and what you preach? Mm, okay, well... Uh, this this discussion we're having now, uh, I started started doing these kinds of discussions uh, with groups of people. As many as t ten people could join what they called a hangout on Google, 
And uh, so I started doing those and uh, had done them for uh, several years. It, it just so happened that uh, some of the people in the chat room uh, were constantly saying, this is my church, this is my church. So I thought, look, there's a lot of people uh, around the country. I, I don't know about the whole world, but in America, I believe there's a lot of cities where uh, people cannot find a church that's preaching the real gospel. And so they, they found us and, and they, they see us as their church. So if that's the case, I just asked everybody else, I said, do you think we could actually turn this into a church? And everybody thought, well, we could try. Let's see if, if, if it's Lord's will. So we did. We, so we, we started uh, adopting things like uh, prayer requests, um, uh, uh, even some uh, gospel music, some praise and worship music. Uh, and uh, we even eventually adopted and brought in uh, the communion uh, the first Sunday of each month. And gradually, more and more things that you would expect from a church. This is what we are asking. What is you you want? If this you, this is your church, tell me what you want your church to be. And we tried to gradually um, uh, adopt all these things. Um, let me see the. Uh, what am I forgetting there? I'll, I'll think of it in a second. But uh, it, it just naturally evolved uh, into this church, and so. We started off, uh, someone started calling it, he started saying, this is the church without walls. And I'd never heard the term before, but I thought church without walls because it's, it's on the internet. I said, and uh, that's, that's a beautiful way of expressing it. So we were calling ourselves the church without walls. Uh, and then uh, after about a month of doing that, uh, someone brought to my attention that that's not an original uh, term that, uh, there is, is a church without walls. In fact, there's others and organizations that have used that. And we didn't want to have any uh, problem using other people's names. Uh, so we had to come up with another name. I asked everybody to offer suggestions. What should this church be called? And sometimes, uh, I, I guess I, it's, it, it turns out I have to do it myself because I didn't get that many uh, ideas. So I came up with about 20 different ideas, and then I ran it by a, a couple of the people, and we narrowed it down and settled on the Church of the Eternally Secure, because we believe that eternal security is the heart of the gospel, understanding that the good, the good news is that you're guaranteed eternal life. It's guaranteed. You are eternally secure. Nothing can undo the new birth. And so uh, we thought that that would be a, a perfect way by putting that in the name of the church, always keeping that in our mind, that that is the core doctrine of, of uh, we have three core doctrines, actually, the deity of Christ, faith alone for salvation, and eternal security. All other uh, biblical subject matter, we allow flexibility or freedom, or liberty. Matter of fact, I think I'm not a fan of Augustine. But uh, I, I, believe, I, I believe Augustine is the, is the one that's attributed with originally saying that um, uh, unity, liberty, charity, um, unity on essential doctrines, liberty on non-essential doctrines, and charity in all things. So whether we're uh, united on uh, the essentials or we're debating uh, and discussing non-essentials, love has to be 
in, in, in at all times. So when we disagree, we have to do it as lovingly as we possibly can. And that became like the, the operating principle of the church, unity, liberty, charity. I like that. And I also like what you said about the church not being confined to the four walls, because that's something that when I started this um, ministry and when I was pitching to people very early on, I said, Christianity is a nation that knows no boundaries. The church knows no walls. So I feel like that is a message that a lot of people don't grasp, especially those Christians who are just so confined to their Sunday worship service and don't, they don't do much beyond that. Um, but I think that's absolutely amazing. So I will actually put all of Brother Luke's information down in the description box below for whoever wants to check out his channel as well as Church of the Eternally Secure. On Sunday nights, you guys do the service, which I get to now be part of, which is super exciting. Um, that is at 5 o'clock p.m. Eastern, if I believe. And then Wednesday and Friday, you guys meet at 9.30 p.m. Eastern. Wednesday's a Bible study, and then Friday's Fun Fellowship Friday, which absolutely is such a good time. A lot of true-false statements, get to really dive deep on some questions. So absolutely a good time. So make sure you check down the description box for all that information. But today, we are going to be talking a lot about this concept of truth. And I know this is something being so big into church doctrines, church history is something very close to your heart. So when you hear the word truth, what comes to mind? Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is uh, the person. Because, matter of fact, the very first sermon that I ever uh, did publicly um, uh, it was called, titled Truth. And so the, the, the point I'm making is that truth is a person. And that's uh, Jesus said he is the truth. Um, so that, that's the first thought that comes to my mind about truth. But of course, the truth is that which is true rather than which is untrue. So, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's much broader than that. But really, we need to understand before anything else that Jesus is the truth. Absolutely. What would you say about those people who say there is no absolute truth? Everybody's entitled to their own truth. Oh, well, they are entitled to it, but at their own peril. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, uh, uh, moral relativism has been around a long time. I'm 70 years old now. And uh, you're, you could actually, I was just thinking about this today. You could not only be my son, you could be my grandson. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that we, uh, we can uh, enjoy talking to each other. Uh, there's, and there's not this great gap in, because of generations. Mm -hmm. uh, but this idea of moral relativity, uh, it's been around for a long time. I think I first heard of it about 40 years ago as an as a, as a idea, moral relativity, that, uh, and tr truth is relative, and that uh, don't judge anybody because you know, their truth is is just as uh, valid for them as your truth is for you, you know. But of course, we know that's all uh, just, I, I don't want to like, be rude or insulting to people, but it's, it's absurd. You know, we, we believe that the Bible is our source of truth. So, I, you know, you ask me, what is truth? Well, I would say Jesus first. And then the next thing I would add is, uh, okay, we go to the Bible for the truth. We test all things by the scriptures. Okay. 
Yeah. And I don't feel like that's necessarily having to be afraid of offending anyone because it's all about what the Bible tells us to do to speak truth in love. I remember one time I was talking on the phone with somebody and they were asking, well, how would I prove that everybody or that there is absolute truth and not individual truth? And so I said, well, would it be true if I said that I was in the same room as you right now? And they said no. And I was like, why? That's my truth. So, so we're actually going to go ahead and hop in the word now this week there is a bunch of scripture the first thing we're actually going to be looking at is when jesus predicts his death and he actually does that three times so instead of sharing all that scripture with you guys that's going to be in the description box below but we'll go ahead and play an audio clip of one of them so go ahead and take a listen from that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me. For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. Verily I say unto you, There be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So do you feel there is a significance in the fact that Jesus, I mean, it's only recorded three times, but we know for a fact that Jesus predicted his death three times. Is there a significance behind that number? Well, I, I really couldn't nail it down uh, and, and say this is the significance, but I, I suspect there probably is. I mean, the, most things in the Bible are not there just by, by chance, uh, but uh, I've been doing uh, this, this last couple of years, even more so the last couple of months, I've really been re-looking at the book of Revelation. Uh, and of course, numbers in that book are very significant. However, these numbers should not be taken literally, I don't think. Uh, I don't think a thousand means a thousand. Just like when we say that the, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Well, what about the one thousand and first hill? Does, doesn't he own those? You know, what about the two thousandth hill? Because there's a lot of hills in the earth. Uh, so we know that it just means a thousand just represents a lot. It's a large number, or it could represent all of them. All. But so uh, a lot of numbers are, they are significant and there is something to be learned from it. And we should attempt to try to get to the bottom of what do these numbers mean? Uh, but uh, all of it, some of these things are really we, we can't be absolutely sure about them because, you know, you'll get varying opinions and people arguing about, well, this, I think it means this. These are things that are subjective. Yeah. 
Yeah, for me, I, I, this is just where I'm leaning. I feel, you know, he's predicting his death and resurrection. So I feel like it's very tied to the three days that he's buried and rose again. But three is such a prominent number. So it could really tie to so many things. Well, I'm curious, have you ever thought about uh, why is it uh, you think Jesus said to, to Peter, three times mm-hmm. uh love uh you know love the brother love love me love the brother you love me do you love the brethren you know why did he say it three times to peter yeah any yeah. significance in that i've also thought about when mary and joseph um and people kind of chuckle at me with this one but when they were returning home and they had to turn back to G- turn back around to go for jesus it was after three days, but they essentially, they repented from the direction they were heading and turned back to Jesus. And I think that's something that people kind of overlook, but I really like that. Yeah. Uh, I don't know, but I just suspect that it was Jesus's way of making the point to Peter, you denied me three times. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'm asking you three times about loving, loving me. Do you love me? And, and, and yes, yes, I love you. You know I love you, Lord. Yes, of course I love you. Uh, okay, it's done. Get over it now, Peter. Don't, 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 don't worry about it anymore. I know you love me. And even though you denied me three times, forget about it. Don't let that bother you in, in the future. Yes. What I find most interesting is that Jesus did this on several occasions to his disciple. He ex- he preached that he was going to die and rise again. But when it actually happened they were still shocked. Why do you think that is? Well, I, I, I think that the, the, his audience as a whole and even his closest apostles, uh, they just really didn't get what was happening uh, because um, I, I think, and I think this mistake is still happening uh, a lot today with this, this issue. And that is, what exactly is this promised Messiah to be? It, uh, they believe that he was going to come and be a king on, on over Israel, and he would be a military leader, like a general, and then become king or emperor, and uh, he would de- defeat the Romans and, and cast them out, and this is how they envisioned that this Messiah would come and what he would accomplish. Um, uh, well, he, he came to set up a kingdom, and he did, <laughs> but it was a spiritual kingdom that he established, and uh, I think that um, many people today are still, they still haven't gotten that uh, straightened out. They still are making the same mistake that the Jewish people did at the time of Jesus, thinking that uh, the purpose is to establish this kingdom on earth but uh this literal physical kingdom on earth uh and but since he didn't do it then they they say he's going to do it in the future and there will be a a future millennial kingdom where he will establish it but i believe that wait a second they made that mistake thinking jesus came to set up that kingdom and now some of us are still making that same mistake thinking he's coming back to set up the kingdom but he did set the kingdom all along, but it's spiritual. He says, don't, don't think low here or low there that you can identify and see this kingdom because it's, it's invisible. It's within you. It's a spiritual kingdom. And so it, that is already established. Uh, 
so that is an example of how uh, one of the most basic things, uh, understanding the point of this Messiah. Why is he coming? What's the point of it all? Uh, they, they didn't even understand that. So if you don't get that right, if you don't know why the Messiah is coming and what he would accomplish, then everything else he's saying, you're not going to get it. You're thinking, if you can set up a kingdom, you know, he can't really be crucified. You know, I don't know why you're saying that, but obviously he can't be crucified. Look, they all denied it. He said, I mean, <laughs> Peter even said, I won't let you be crucified. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a very good point. And for me personally, I'm not quite familiar. I'm like newer to this whole concept of the millennial kingdom. I didn't really know that that theory was floating about until more recently. Um, so but it's like you said, the kingdom of God, that's, you know, it's not meat and drink like the word says. Um, this uh, section here, I'm actually looking at Matthew 16, verses 24 through 28. And I know that you're very outspoken against lordship salvation. And this is actually a text they'll often go to. It's the text that said, if any man will come to me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Um, whoever sells, uh, save his life shall lose it. And what will it profit the whole man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Basically, that whole section, which a lot of Lordship Salvation will go to, to prove their case that, you know, if you are not working hard, being obedient, all that, you can actually fall from grace. So what is your commentary and what do you feel that people are overlooking when it comes to that passage of scripture? This first verse, 24 uh, I'm going to probably give you a different take on this than you've heard before. And I'm not saying that this is, see, I, I believe that, that before anything else, we try to understand um, when we interpret the scriptures, we should try to understand what was the intended meaning of the, of the writer or the speaker at the time. When, when that was written or spoken, and to those people at that time, what was really being conveyed? Uh, not about 2,000 years later, what, how, how is it relevant? But we need to find out what was the intended of the uh, writer at the time. But uh, someone told me just this about a year ago, uh, something on this verse. And, and sometimes you can come up with a spiritual meaning that is uh, really interesting, even though I don't think this was uh, what it was intended. But when we look at that verse, the interesting thing I see in there now is it says, then said Jesus unto his disciples, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, uh, people will normally interpret that as uh, that uh, you have to surrender your life and your will over to, to uh, Jesus and may, let him be Lord of your life, uh, repent of all your sins, and, uh, and uh, no longer continue to sin, and, and uh, deny your self-interests, and, and now uh, take up your cross and serve him. Uh, uh, dedicate your life to serving him. And they will, then they will say that not only that, that, but this is actually a requirement for salvation. So rather than believing that Jesus uh, accomplished your salvation and Jesus provides it simply by trusting him for it, they are making a system of works where you've got to surrender your life and your will. You've got to 
pick up your cross and, and, uh, and basically get busy working, earning your salvation. This is how people would interpret that. But what do you think of this? It says, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself. I would say that that's, that's a good idea. What we should be doing is denying that my self-righteousness can contribute to my salvation. No, I'm denying my self-righteousness. I'm rejecting that. I will not offer my righteousness to the Lord. If, if the Lord was judging me and says, why should I let you into heaven? He said he was going to, there's going to come a day where people will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, look at all the wonderful works we've done in your name. And, and, uh, but that's, that's what most people expect. They think that when they get judged, They'll go before the Lord and he says, why should I let you into heaven? What, what have you done to, to deserve it, to earn it? And they're going to present their case. Self-righteousness. I, I hope that I've done enough. Look, here's my resume of good deeds. And, uh, but he says here, depart from me, worker of iniquity. I never knew you. Because we know if we look at the Bible in the, as a whole, the context, we realize that we're not saved by uh, making ourselves acceptable to, to God, we, that could never happen because we'd have to make ourselves perfect. Uh, James says, if you keep the whole law yet offend in one point, you're guilty of all. Paul says, if you put yourself under the law, you're putting yourself under a curse because it's impossible to follow it. Uh, they asked uh, Jesus, well, after the rich young ruler left, I mean, if that, if, if based on what you just said, Lord, and you also said, cut off your hand, gouge out your eye. If it's causing you to sin, Lord, how is it possible for anyone to get saved? You're so demanding. And he says, now you get it. With man, it is impossible. That's what we need to understand. It's impossible to get salvation through our own efforts. Uh, but with God, it's possible. Rely on God for your salvation. And that's me. Um, so uh, when we look at that verse now, and it says, deny yourself, instead of denying all of the pleasures of life to yourself or any, any uh, freedom in your life to do what you want to do, but no, your life has to be completely uh, submitted and surrendered to, to the will of God in order to earn your salvation. No, deny your own self-righteousness. Don't you dare go before the Lord and boast, look, I've, look what I've done. Haven't I done enough? Uh, and then the remainder of the verse says, pick up your cross, uh, take up your cross. So <laughs> people will say that verse means, uh, uh, well, that, that means that you've got to be crucified and suffer for the Lord. You've got to, you know, be willing to do anything in, in denying yourself. Uh, well, again, that's a system of, of works. That's based on personal merit rather than grace and faith. Uh, so how could you better understand picking up your cross? Okay, I deny my own righteousness. My righteousness, like, like the, um, the, the uh, tax collector and the Pharisee, the Pharisees, oh, Lord, I'm thankful I'm not like these other people. They're this and that, but not me. Uh, you know, I just pray and fast and give my alms and, the other, the tax collector just was prostrate and said, 
God have mercy on me, a sinner. He denied himself. He was not trying to present his own righteousness. He knew he had no righteousness that to satisfy God. And so when it says, uh, pick up your cross, I would say, my plea to the Lord is, if you're asking me why I should be here, why I should get into heaven, it's not, I'm denying myself. It's not because of me. It's because of the cross. I'm, I'm, I'm embracing the cross as that's my means of salvation. I'm relying on what you did on the cross, Lord. So uh, that's a little different way of looking about denying yourself and picking up your cross, isn't it? It is, but I actually really like that interpretation. And I think I can already hear people getting uppity about this. And this is not to say we are encouraging in any way an easy lifestyle, a lifestyle that's not lived for the Lord. How I've always looked at this verse is, you know, this to me is one of those verses that makes the clear distinction between salvation, which has nothing to do with us, and discipleship, which is our reasonable journey or our reasonable service in our journey to become more and more like Christ each and every day. But the moment we mix those two together, we start to rely on our works rather than rely on Jesus Christ alone. And that's where it gets dangerous. Because if you're not relying on Jesus to be your deliverance from all these obstacles, you're starting to put your trust in yourself and you're not trusting in the true gospel. And thus you are falling from grace, just like it says in Galatians. And I also like what you said about the verse you brought up in Matthew 7, because that's another one that they'll go to and say, oh, well, if you're not doing the will of the Father. But the book of John tells us very clearly what the will of the Father is, and that is that we are to believe on Jesus. So there's going to be many people who come and say, Lord, Lord, and he's going to mm -hmm. say, depart from me, I never knew you. Not I knew you for a little bit, not that I knew you one time and you fell from grace. No, I never knew you. I never had a relationship with you. So definitely very interesting. Well, I will say that uh, your, your interpretation of... Um, deny yourself and pick up your cross is better than mine. That's actually the real interpretation. It, and we need to make this distinction between uh, salvation and service or salvation and discipleship. Uh, uh, myself and us at CES, Church of the Eternally Secure, uh, we, we're not against works. We love working for the Lord. It's, it's, it's a labor of love. And we, we probably work in... I mean, I don't, I don't want to cross the line and get into boasting, but uh, we're, we do a lot. We, we, all the programs we have and all the ministry work that we do, uh, and yet we want everybody to understand that that is not contributing to our salvation. It's not a, it's not a prerequisite. That you got to do work before you can be saved. It, it's not a maintenance where I've got to keep working to keep my salvation. And it certainly doesn't even mean that it's proof of a real conversion, that if you don't have the works, that proves you never really got saved. No, it should not be twisted and used in that way. On the other hand, uh, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10, 8, 9 says, for by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But verse 10 gives us the, puts it in perspective. It says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Now I've got thousands of videos I've created on, on uh, YouTube. Uh, my original channel for 12 years was Sin City Preacher. 
and then we had a, a copyright violation and, and, and uh, ended up having my channel closed because of that. But uh, all that old content I've, I've spent the last 13 or 14 years creating on YouTube, uh, we've been able to get that on my channel, Brother Luke. That's the channel I'm on right now. Um, so, but one of the oldest videos I made going back many, many years is titled The Difference Between Must and Should. What must I do to be saved? Well, does that sound familiar? Is there a verse that asks that exact question? <laughs> Acts 16, 31, uh, 30, 31. What must I do? Must means this is a requirement. It's essential. It's, it's absolutely necessary. Without it, you can't be saved. What is it? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. It doesn't say believe and get water baptized, believe and repent of your sins, believe and get busy working, be, believe and attend church. It just says believe. Believing is what's required. That's what you must do. Now, you notice in Ephesians 2.10, 2, it doesn't have the word must. It says should. So it says, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So works are something we should be doing. Um, and, and it's not something I'm saying that, well, we should be doing it grudgingly. <laughs> no. Like right now, what we're doing here, I believe this is actually a work. Absolutely. But I don't feel I, I don't feel like what we're doing right now is laborious for me. It's not it's not drudgery. Uh, there's nothing I would rather do than talk about Jesus in the Bible. That's the, that's that's my greatest thrill. Every opportunity I have, that's what I'm living for. And if I find someone else who loves Jesus in the Bible, wow, what a wonderful thing that we get to do this together. So even though this is something we should be doing, it's not uh, it's not something I have to force myself to do. I'm looking forward to it all the time. Uh, so myself and uh, the, us at CES. We're certainly not against works. We're all for works. We're, but we're against making it an, a requirement for one's salvation. Because Paul, Paul make, goes to great lengths to tell us that if you mix faith and works together, you've nullified it. You've frustrated the grace of God. And now Christ is of no effect. Mm -hmm. There's no value of the gospel if you mix it with works. So, uh, yeah, this, this distinction that you're, you're making there is, uh, you know, when I say that uh, um, uh, on, uh, Jesus says oh, there'll be a day when people come to me and say, look at all the wonderful works, and I'm kind of mocking that in a way. And I, well, no, I'm not, I'm not mocking the idea that of us working for the Lord. That's a privilege for us. It's a joy to do it. But I'm saying those people who are trusting in their works, Jesus says that's those are workers of iniquity because their works are, are be, being used to get to salvation instead of trusting the finished work of Christ. Yeah, I like that because for me, I feel like from the time I wake up to the time I go to bed, all I'm doing is working on this ministry, but I never grow tired. It's always so much fun. I get to meet amazing people such as yourself. So to me, I know nothing that I do contributes to my salvation. It's just a joy and it's a privilege. And sometimes I get choked up thinking about it. Like I'll look at the opportunities that I have and I'm just like, God, why me? I, because I have been far from perfect. I have been so disobedient in my walk sometimes. So it's just so amazing how long suffering he is and the grace that he shows us. 
So this next section here is when Jesus explains why he must die. And we can read this in John chapter 12, verses 20 through 50. So go ahead and take a listen. And there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same came therefore to Philip, which was of Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip cometh and telleth Andrew, and again Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me, and where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven, saying, I have both glorified it, and will glorify it again. The people therefore that stood by and heard it, said that it thundered. Others said, An angel spake to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying what death he should die. The people answered him, We have heard out of the law that Christ abideth forever. And how sayest thou, the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus said unto them, Yet a little while is the light with you. Walk while ye have the light, lest darkness come upon you. For he that walketh in darkness knoweth not whither he goeth. While ye have light, believe in the light, that ye may be the children of light. These things spake Jesus, and departed, and did hide himself from them. But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him, that the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report, and to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because that Isaiah said again, He hath blinded their eyes, and hardened their heart, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted, and I should heal them. These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory, and spake of him. Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also many believed on him, but because of the Pharisees they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Jesus cried and said, He that believeth on me believeth not on me, but on him that sent me. And he that seeth me seeth him that sent me. I am come a light into the world, that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. And if any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not. For I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. He that rejecteth me, and receiveth not my words, hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. 
for I have not spoken of myself. But the Father which sent me, he gave me a commandment what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his commandment is life everlasting. Whatsoever I speak, therefore, even as the Father said unto me, so I speak. So we read in this section here that sacrifice comes along with bringing glory to God. So what can we learn from this verse and how can we apply that into our Christian walk? Well, in 20 through 50, 30 verses, you know, when I do my, uh, <clears throat> on uh, Wednesday nights, uh, we're, we're uh, the church of eternally secure uh, we are working our way through the Pauline epistles right now, and we're going through it a verse at a time. And uh, you'll be with us uh, this next Wednesday uh, for the first time. And you and Renee and I will give our thoughts in each verse as we're going, going forward. That's called expository Bible study. Well, uh, I did a lot of expository Bible studies on my own, uh, apart from group discussions where the, those studies are on my channel. But uh, to try to, to, to take um, 30 verses, if I was going to try to explain 30 verses right now, uh, <laughs> and contest and go through that, that's going to take me probably about uh, five hours. <laughs> so make sure you guys tune in for Brother Luke's program. <laughs> yeah, but there, I, I think when you I looked at your uh, notes on this, uh, you were asking about one thing related to Calvinism, I think about... Uh, uh, I will draw all men to myself. Uh, is that, uh, is that, that's on your questions, isn't it? I, yeah. That's very, that's I find, yeah. In verse 32, it says, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth will be drawn all men unto me. And to me, I read that verse and it stuck out immediately. And I was like, I have to ask brother Luke about this because doesn't that verse refute Calvin, Calvinism right there? Yeah, it does. Uh, but, uh, of course, the Calvinists, they, they have a great advantage on us. And so it's, it's really hard to, to overcome Calvinism as long as Calvinists have the right to redefine words. Like all really doesn't mean all to a Calvinist. Yeah. Yeah. It says all men, but uh, it, was, it would say, they would interpret that, well, that really means all kinds of men, Jews and Gentiles. Okay. The word world uh, no, it doesn't, it doesn't really mean world. And, and John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he, he, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Well, that should refute Calvinism too. And he loves the whole world. But Calvinists say, no, he only loves the elect. But this says he loves the world. Well, then what are they going to do? Well, world doesn't really mean world. Don't you know that? It just means that up even even apart from uh, apart from uh, Israel, people in other countries, some of those are also elect. <laughs> so um, the problem with them with Calvinism is that they, they're really the root core of their problem is they don't understand Romans chapter nine, uh, and and uh, uh, of all the Bible studies I've done. Uh, I would consider uh, the teaching on Romans chapter nine to be one of the most important things I've ever done. So um, anybody who doesn't know about Calvinism or is looking into it, or uh, you're, you're uh, uh, interested in it and leaning towards that. Um, well, I, I would recommend you go to the channels beyond uh, the fundamentals 
and another channel, Soteriology 101. These are the best channels I found for refuting Calvinism. But uh, I have a playlist titled um, uh, Calvinism Debunked. But really, the, the, the origin of the problem with Calvinism is they don't get Romans chapter 9 right. They apply it to, to personal individual salvation. And so if, you, if, you're, if you're thinking this chapter is about personal individual salvation, as you read it, you're going to read that interpretation into it. That's called eisegesis. You're, you're reading into it a preconceived idea. Instead of eisegesis, uh, I mean, exegesis is uh, you take out of the Bible what it says and just accept it for what it says. So um, what I taught on Romans 9, I, if, you, if someone's interested and you listen to that, you'll find out that uh, what Romans 9 is really all about. It's, it's, uh, I'm not going to try to explain that now because it would take too long. <laughs> but uh, because they get Romans 9 wrong and, and, and then they think that, well, uh, God hates people before they're even born. You know, I, I love Jacob, but I hated Esau. Okay. Uh, because they get that wrong and they come to this false conclusion, then they see verses like, in this way, I'll draw all men to myself. Well, that, that contradicts their, 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 their doctrine. Uh, God doesn't love all people. God didn't die for all people, uh, only the elect. That verse contradicts it, so I have to redefine the word all. All it means all kinds of people. See, so that's what they're forced to do. And there's many cases where you can give them a verse to refute their their doctrine, but they'll just say, "Well, they 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 redefine all these words." Yeah, and unfortunately, they're not the only ones. But <laughs> so this next account we're actually going to look at is the Transfiguration of Jesus. So go ahead and take a listen. Okay. And after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John his brother, and bringeth them up into an high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them. And his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias talking with him. Then answered Peter, and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here, if thou wilt. Let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elias. While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud, which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face, and were sore afraid. And Jesus came and touched them, and said, Arise, and be not afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then say the scribes that Elias must first come? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Elias truly shall first come and restore all things. But I say unto you that Elias is come already. And they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Then the disciples understood that he spake unto them of John the Baptist. Okay. All right, so what is the significance of the transfiguration? Well, 
you know, I've never really tried to really focus on what's the significance of it. It has a lot of important things that, I, that come to my mind when I, when I think of it, though. Uh, to me, the transfiguration and the, the baptism of Jesus prove a lot of things that, that are necessary because there's a lot of false teachings going on, like um, modalism, uh, or what's called... Um, I'll think of it in a minute, but there's an ancient theologian that came up with the original idea for modalism. And that is that, that uh, God is not triune, uh, not three distinct persons uh, that are uh, exist at the same time. Uh, we've got one God, Jesus is God, the Father is God, the Holy Spirit's God, and yet there's only one God. And, you know, the uh, there are ancient creeds in the church that, that gave a great uh, lengths to try to explain it, put that into words to help us to understand it, that they've done a good job in these creeds. But uh, the modalist idea is that no, um, that, uh, when you, Jesus is God, but, Je but Jesus is the Father, Jesus is the Son, Jesus is the Holy Spirit. He just... I'm, <laughs> I'm Jesus now. <laughs> yes, get that beanie. <laughs> now I'm the Holy Spirit. Now I'm the Father. See, uh, modalism means that Jesus just changes modes of operation. Mm. It's kind of like just now he's operating in the mode as the Father, but it's really one person who's doing it all, just changing modes of operation. Um, so um, that's modalism, but the baptism of Jesus, when you have three persons of the Godhead all present at the same time, Jesus being baptized in the flesh, the Holy Spirit ascending in the manner of a dove above the Lord, and the Father speaking, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. So you have uh, that event refutes the whole idea of modalism and gives us well it's got to be uh, the godhead is triune three existing at the same time three distinct personages and yet we still believe there's one god somehow uh and then the same thing is true with the transfiguration the transfiguration uh we have the plurality display that you have jesus and the father distinct at the transfiguration. But these things here are not for the benefit of Jesus. I mean, Jesus knows who he is. Uh, that was for the benefit of John the Baptist and everybody else watching and for us to be able to talk about it and use it as proof today for our, our uh, doctrine. Uh, so the transfiguration and uh, the baptism, and uh, I, I first think of them as these are proofs that refute uh, modalism. Uh, and there's more. Uh, I'm sure there's more things about the transfiguration that we that will come up with. We continue talking about, it. but that's the first thing that that comes to my mind that's that's significant. But uh, uh, also, you have um, Moses and Elijah representing the law and the prophets. So uh, here you have the law and the prophets, with the Jews considered to be the ultimate, and yet 
instead of Peter, uh, I mean, uh, or Peter, I think is the one that said it because he's always the one that's anxious <laughs> to talk. So, oh, no, let's build a tabernacle for each of you. And, and uh, the father says, wait, listen, this is my son. Just uh, listen to him. So he basically uh, put an end to the idea that somehow, wait, don't think of Jesus as just another prophet. You know, these are these, these guys are my prophets. This is my son. And, you know, I have a son and he's 41 years old now. And uh, my son's human. And I'm human. I'm, am I more human than my son? My son has to be equally human to me. And, and, and Jesus, being the, the son of, of God, the only begotten son of God, this is a distinction so that you and I are sons of God in a different way, by adoption. But Jesus is the son of God in terms of substance and essence, both fully God. Uh, and uh, so uh, that means that if Jesus is the son of God, that means he's equal with the father. And that's why they wanted to stone him that day. Remember? They, they, they said, you're calling yourself the son of God, making yourself equal to God. So the one thing that comes to mind with the transfiguration, you kind of alluded to it, you know, the fact that Moses was the author of the law. And then we have Elijah, one of the major prophets and Jesus standing there saying, like, I am the completion of the law. I am the completion of the prophecy. And what else is very interesting is we keep talking about this number three, and Jesus only took three of his disciples with him. So just some tidbits there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Peter, Andrew, and James, if I remember correctly. And I, I thought it was interesting what you said yesterday about uh, the book of James, the author being the apostle James rather than James, the brother of the Lord. Uh, I, I haven't heard that one. But uh, yeah, James is, um, you know, you had Peter and Andrew, and then you had John and James. Uh, no, I'm, did I say Peter, Andrew, and, and uh, James? It was, it, was, it was Peter, John, and James, right? Uh, so you had uh, John and James, or brothers, and then Peter, but his brother Andrew's not there. Uh, but the... The three of them, why Why them? Uh, I, I think the Bible, or at least theologians, refer to them as the inner circle. Mm -hmm. uh, these are, these are the, the three that, for some reason, he pulls them apart, makes them, I think, in the, in the uh, Gethsemane. Didn't he also have, separate them, too? Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's very interesting. So this next account we're actually going to look at is when Jesus arrives to Jerusalem on a donkey. So go ahead and take a listen. And when they drew nigh unto Jerusalem, and were come to Bethphage, unto the Mount of Olives, then sent Jesus two disciples, saying unto them, Go into the village over against you, and straightway ye shall find an ass tied, and a colt with her. Loose them, and bring them unto me. And if any man say aught unto you, ye shall say, The Lord hath need of them. And straightway he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell ye the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, meek and sitting upon an ass, and a colt the foal of an ass. And the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them, and brought the ass and the colt, and put on them their clothes, and they set him thereon. And a very great multitude spread their garments in the way. Others cut down branches from the trees, and strawed them in the way. 
And the multitudes that went before and that followed cried, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he was come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? And the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. So this is a monumental moment in the ministry of Jesus. Many people, even Christian, or even people who aren't Christians, know of this triumphal entry. So what is the significance behind this entrance, and why a donkey? Well, uh, the the donkey uh, is necessary because it's a fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy. Uh, there, there are, oh, I believe there's, if, if I remember correctly, there's over 300 Old Testament prophecies that uh, give great details about this Messiah that would come. And one of them is that he would be uh, arriving on uh, a donkey. It's, it's phrased a little bit differently, like on the cult of a foal or something. I don't remember the term terminology. Uh, but uh, of course, he had to get on arriving this donkey because that's part. He made sure that he was fulfilling all of these Old Testament prophecies. But many of the things were really out of his control as far as, you know, humanly trying to manipulate things. Like scripture says, I need to arrive on a donkey. So make sure you have a donkey ready for me. And he did it. But uh, there's other things that he did, like, uh, oh, uh, he betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Um, obviously, n- nobody manipulated that. It's the Pharisees that paid uh, Judas 30 pieces of silver to betray him. So uh, these uh, prophecies uh, about this Messiah, these are some of the reasons that we have so much confidence that our faith is justified, fulfillment of these prophecies. The prophecies are not vague, uh, you know, uh, really uh, things that are absurd that you expected to believe is a fulfilled prophecy like uh, Edgar Cayce, uh, Jeannie Dixon, Nostradamus is the most famous one today. Their prophecies are very, very vague and it could be understood as many different things. But the prophecies that give us the confidence that the scripture is the word of God and Jesus is the promised Messiah. These are detailed, very, very clear and specific. And the donkey and 30 pieces of silver and about 200, 290 others. <laughs> yeah. I have a playlist that says uh, uh, prophecies in the Bible. So go to that if you, if you want to know more about all the prophecies, because it really could be very, very persuasive to make a person confident that our faith is justified. For sure. Yeah. Especially since, you know, those prophecies are written anywhere from 400 to 1500 years before the birth of Jesus. Um, It's funny because when I read this account, I can't help but think of the donkey that God spoke through in Numbers 22. (laughs) And so, you know, I think of things like that, but absolutely a beautiful picture for Christianity. One of the most, I, I don't, it's very interesting to me because we see this same group that's yelling Hosanna about to kill him just a few days later and it's just so quickly how things can turn so definitely a big moment for Christianity. When he he told them that they had to eat his flesh and drink his blood uh, obviously uh, if you you didn't understand the, the real meaning of that you could be uh, uh, repulsed by that. And that's exactly what happened. The crowd turned against him over that. Uh, But some of these things, uh, like when Jesus said that uh, 
you know, he he couldn't uh, do certain things at that time because the timing was not right. Uh, the, the, and when he says that uh, I speak in parables because I don't want them to understand it, then, then they would believe. Well, why would he not want them to believe? Well, because if they actually all believed in him and embraced him, they never would have crucified him. Mm-hmm. He had to be crucified. He knew that. So uh, he really had to um, uh, speak in parables. And so that, uh, you know, certain people keep, would get it, but not everybody, because if he really did win over the entire nation, they would have made him king. And instead of uh, having Christianity, we would have had uh, him as a king. And then, of course, uh, Rome would have destroyed the nation of Israel. They're too powerful. And unless he exercised his godly ability to destroy them. But that's not why he came. That's why what we were talking about earlier is that the, this one of the grave great misunderstandings was they were expecting the messiah to come as a military leader like a general to conquer and be their king not as a king in a, of the, of the spiritual king absolutely so this next section here i'm sure we're both gonna have quite a bit to say it's where jesus condemns the religious leaders so go ahead and take a listen But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayer. Therefore ye shall receive the greater damnation. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye compass sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he is made, ye make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. Woe unto you, ye blind guides, which say, Whosoever shall swear by the temple, it is nothing. But whosoever shall swear by the gold of the temple, he is a debtor. Ye fools and blind. For whether is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifieth the gold? And whosoever shall swear by the altar, it is nothing. But whosoever sweareth by the gift that is upon it, he is guilty, ye fools and blind. For whether is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifieth the gift? Whoso therefore shall swear by the altar, sweareth by it and by all things thereon. And whoso shall swear by the temple, sweareth by it and by him that dwelleth therein. And he that shall swear by heaven, sweareth by the throne of God and by him that sitteth thereon. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought ye to have done, and not to leave the other undone. Ye blind guides, which strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. Thou blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup and platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Even so, ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within 
you are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because ye build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchres of the righteous and say, If we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Wherefore ye be witnesses unto yourselves that ye are the children of them which killed the prophets. Fill ye up then the measure of your fathers, ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill and crucify, and some of them shall ye scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zacharias son of Barachias, whom ye slew between the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. So. Why do you feel that Jesus spent so much of his ministry condemning religious leaders? And how do you think that correlates to the world we live in today? Well, this is really, as I, I think I made this point in the very beginning, but uh, uh, this is something that is uh, so important, it's worth repeating over and over again. And that is the distinction between what we call biblical Christianity and Christendom, uh, the various uh, varieties of so-called Christianity that we find in the world. Uh, the difference is uh, the idea that uh, we can go before God and plead our case, well, this is why you should let me into heaven. I've earned it. I deserve it, don't I? Uh, no, we need, we need to reject that idea. We need to deny our self-righteousness and, and, and instead uh, appeal to God, the blood of Jesus. There's a gospel song, um, nothing but the blood. And that's, that's, the, that's what we need to understand. Nothing but the blood. Nothing I do, just the blood of Christ is what I'm trusting, that he did it all for me, and he promised me eternal life if I just trust him completely. Uh, so the Pharisees, though, they're, they were full of self-righteousness. Uh, I, I always thought it was interesting how Jesus was so kind and forgiving uh, and understanding to the, the uh, adulteress, the prostitute. The tax collector, the tax collector was the most despised person in the nation because he's a Jew working for the Romans, taxing uh, to a, you know, a very unfair way too, but taking advantage and getting rich off of his fellow Jews serving the Romans. They hated the tax collectors. So Matthew was a tax collector. And uh, what was, uh, what was the one in the tree? Uh, what was his name? Uh, the guy, the guy that was in the tree. I can't Jesus, remember. It just blanked on me. Yeah, Jesus went to, to, to dinner at his house, and then he gave back a lot of his money to, to the poor because he was rep repented of, of, you know, making mm -hmm. getting, profiting off of it. But the point is, Jesus was very loving and forgiving to these people, and yet, how did he treat the Pharisees? These are the people who were supposed to be the most respected. They were the most religious uh, they uh, they were trying so hard with their religion that they would actually put the scriptures 
in a box and, and wrap, put the box on their head so that their, their scriptures were in their mind and were on their arms so that scriptures were by their heart. Uh, these are called, I think, phylacteries. Uh, uh, I don't know if I got that right, but uh, uh, they, they were working so hard on their own righteousness. And that's why it says in Romans 2, uh, 3.10, this is one of the most important verses in the Bible that tells us what the problem and the solution is. It says they're trying to establish their own righteousness instead of uh, submitting to the righteousness of God. And uh, so people as a whole, if, if you were just to start asking everybody you encounter, um, uh, are you going to go to heaven? And if you're going to heaven, why? Based on what? Why should God let you into heaven? Almost every person will say, well, I, I think I'm going to go to heaven. I hope I'm going to go to heaven. And, and, and it's because I'm a pretty good person. I did, I've never killed anybody. You know, I've never, uh, I, and I try to do good deeds. I follow the golden rule. You know, I, 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 it's all based on self and, and thinking that, if they're good enough, that they believe that somehow God is going to judge them on some kind of a scale, like, like, uh, well, a passing grade a lot of times is sixty percent. If you get sixty percent on a test, you got a D, but you passed. Uh, well, that's not going to be good enough. Uh, even if you get, even if you get a ninety-five percent, and you're thinking, well, I got an A. Guess what? You failed because you have to have one hundred percent. You have, you have to been able to from your first breath. To your last breath have never had one bad thought one bad act and if you've never failed to do good at every opportunity that was what that's the life of jesus not you and me nobody has been able to do that that's why the bible says uh that uh we all fall short of the glory of god jesus is the glory of god he's the example that was set and if you can't equal jesus then you need to trust Jesus' righteousness instead of your own. But that's what the Pharisees were doing. They, they, they were uh, saying that uh, we uh, need our own righteousness. And what, what does that result in? Looking down on other people, you're thinking that you're better than like the Pharisee and the tax collector I mentioned earlier. And it's so funny because we see that so often today with the people who think that they they say that this is what I keep telling people that come to me with legalistic doctrine is I tell them you're pointing to Jesus saying it's all about you, but you're really trusting in the three fingers pointing back at you. And Jesus gives us that ultimatum. He basically says like, okay, you can do it through me or you can do it on your own. It's your choice. And I like what you said, because my personal opinion is pride is one of the most dangerous sins because it just opens the floodgate of so many problems and there's this quote out there that I really like that says it the middle of the word pride and sin is I so I think those are all important things to remember that there is no way that we can amount to the righteousness that we are supposed to have in Christ Jesus and that actually segues perfectly into the next section here where we see the religious leaders plotting to kill Jesus and it came to pass, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said unto his disciples, Ye know that after two days is the feast of the Passover, and the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. 
Then assembled together the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people unto the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas, and consulted that they might take Jesus by subtlety and kill him. But they said, Not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar among the people. So we were talking about the fact that the religious leaders, like you said, they were tying the law to themselves. These are supposed to be the people who are teaching about the coming Messiah. But these are also the people that plotted the death of the coming or the coming Messiah. How did how does that happen? <laughs> well, uh, they really were more interested in um, um, what's the difference between let's say heavenly things and earthly things. Uh, there's a there's a word I'm looking for, but uh, rather than thinking of uh, uh, you know heaven. They, they're really more focused on the here and now and succeeding and keeping their wealth and their power intact. So they said, they actually admitted that um, if we don't put an end to this Jesus guy, uh, he could end up getting the entire nation behind him. And then just what I told you earlier would happen, that Rome would come against them and destroy them. And they, they, they wouldn't have their nation and they wouldn't have their power positions and their wealth. So they thought that Jesus had to be stopped. Otherwise, it was going to cause, they said, better for one man to die than for the, for the whole nation to die or to be destroyed. Remember that? Yeah. Yeah. It's very interesting to me because it it's almost... I don't know. You notice that there are people who get to the point of spiritual blindness where they literally crucified their only source of salvation. Like, how do people become so spiritually blind? And honestly, I think it has a lot to do with pride, but I'm interested to hear your thoughts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, pride. Um, uh, you know, there is a verse in the Bible that says that um, uh, money is the root of all evil, uh, but and people misquote it as I just did. It really says the love of money is the root of all evil. And some translations say the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And I, I think that's probably the best way to express it. All kinds of evil uh, come from being, uh, you know, money being so important to you. Uh, that's why people would say if you say, well, what's really the root of all evil? Because the Bible is explicit on that. However, uh, I really think that um, if you look at all the events of the Bible, uh, the real cause of every, the problems was pride. Mm -hmm. I, pr wasn't pride the cause of the fall of uh, Satan? Mm -hmm. you know, he, he wanted to be ascend above God. Uh, pride and they tempted, he tempted Adam and Eve with their pride, uh, playing upon their pride, saying, you can become your own God. If you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you won't need God because you'll understand good and evil yourself. And you won't certainly die. That, you know, the way God said, you won't die. So what the, they did was pride uh, was, oh, wow, I could become my own God. And so I have a video titled um, uh, Declaration of Dependence, where I'm saying that what Adam and Eve did was they actually declared independence from God. And said, ah, if we eat from that, we'll be independent. We won't need to rely on God anymore. Um, 
But what's necessary is we need to realize that we need to declare dependence on God and say, God, I can't achieve righteousness on my own. I'm going to depend on you to give me righteousness. That's what we call in theology, the imputed righteousness. When we trust Christ for our salvation rather than our own righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, which is perfect, is credited to us, the scripture says. So um, uh, really, it, it does boil down to uh, uh, pride versus humility. And, you know, I, I'm very careful to not place any prerequisites on um, salvation, like uh, you have to do certain things before you can receive the gospel, receive uh, salvation. No, all you got to do is believe. But most people uh, who don't believe that what the real obstacle to it, the, the stumbling stone, is their pride, thinking that, well, I don't really need God. I mean, I'm a good person on my own. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I got it together. Instead of recognizing that, wait, the righteousness of man is like filthy rags in the sight of God. However righteous you think you are, even if you think you're in the top tier of people, I'm in the top 1% of all humanity. I'm that good. Well, guess what? Even the very best of man is filthy rags in the sight of God. So until a person understands that, and, and then they, they are humbled and say, I can't do it. That's, that's what the apostles said after the rich young ruler. They said, it's, how is it possible? What, what you're expecting from us is too much. We got to cut off our hands and gouge out of our eyes and sell everything we own and give it to the poor. And you know, come on, how is it possible to do all that? And Jesus says, now you get it. That now you finally understand what the point I'm making is that it's not possible. You cannot do it on your own. It's possible only with God. You need to rely on God to give you the salvation. I came to give, solve the problem because you can't solve the problem yourself. Amen. And that actually wraps this up perfectly because as a final thought, my question to you is, would you consider Christianity a religion? Well, uh, the way that the world defines uh, religion and the world defines uh, Christianity, they would say yes. But I would certainly say Christianity or what I call Christianity. First of all, I mean, we call him Jesus Christ, not Jesus Christ, right? So uh, if, if the key to this, uh, our faith is uh, that our faith is in Christ, in Jesus Christ, then let's say this is Christianity. Uh, I know that's another, another subject, but um, <clears throat> excuse me. So if we, if Christ is, if it's all about Christ. Uh, I forgot what the question was now. I went off such a tangent there. <laughs> if Christianity is a religion. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's a relationship with a person. Um, I have a relationship with Jesus Christ. My relationship is, this is God who I love and worship. Okay. Uh, this is Lord. I, I, I want to serve you, Lord. How can I serve you? Not because I need to do it to earn salvation, but because it's a privilege. How can I help with your cause? Uh, and uh, uh, so he's, also savior he, my relationship with him is he's the savior 
Now, a lot of people don't understand or admit they need a savior. They need to be saved because they're, they, uh, they have failed and they cannot remedy the problem they have. The problem is they're not perfect. <laughs> it's too late to go back and undo all the things you have already done. And even if today you turn over a new leaf and now the rest of my life, I'm gonna do everything just right. That's not possible. So you need to realize it is impossible and you need to be saved. You need someone to rescue you. And Jesus is the only savior. That's the thing we need to realize. Buddha can't save you. Muhammad can't save you. The Pope can't save you. The Virgin Mary can't save you. Only Christ can save you. And they're all dead. But Jesus rose again. They're still dead. So he proved with that resurrection, he has power over life and death. He proved that his claims were true. He is God manifest in the flesh. He came, says, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. A ransom is a payment made to set someone else free. So uh, we, we need to realize that we are in an impossible situation. We, our situation is hopeless. We're helpless. That's why we need a savior. And the only one able to save us is God himself. And so God became a man. Why? So that he could die. He said, I came to give my life as a ransom. He became a man so he could die. He can't die unless he becomes a man. Yeah. And he had to die because he took our place. He, he took all his sins and suffered his shed blood, his suffering, his death served to pay for all of our sins. So that's what we need to understand and believe. Absolutely. And I think that's what really sets apart, you know, our faith from others is it isn't a religion. It is a relationship. And when you look at other worldviews, they're all about how man pursues God. But when you look at Christianity and Judaism, it's all about God pursuing man. And what's distinct about Christianity is it has nothing to do with man earning their salvation. It has all about God providing a way of salvation. You will not find that. And you also won't find the assurance of us of salvation in any other uh, religion either. So, wow, what a great conversation, Brother Lou. Uh, the religion part, again, I, I, got, I keep forgetting what the original question was, but um, to direct, answer the question directly, I define religion as a system of things that you're required to do in your attempt to earn approval from God. So religion says, do, do, do. So it's a bunch of do-do. Right, <laughs> but religion says do, but Jesus says done. Mm -hmm. It's all done. I did everything. Just trust me. Uh, so uh, Christianity is not a religion because it's not a, a system to try make us ourselves acceptable, improved by God. We're, we're, we admit that I can't do it. I need you, Jesus, to save me. Absolutely. Well, Brother Luke, it was great talking to you today. I'm so glad you had the chance to come on the podcast, and I will be seeing you back on your program every Sunday, Wednesday, and Friday. Mm -hmm. All right. Thank you. It's always a pleasure talking to you and to the whole audience. Uh, uh, thank you for listening, and bless you all in the name of our great Savior God, Jesus. 
All right, guys. So it was another great conversation today with Brother Luke. I do hope it was edifying to you and your walk. I wanted to close out this podcast with a verse that I feel really encompasses everything that we talked about today. Brother Luke actually brought it up earlier in Romans 10, verse 3, but I'm also going to read verse 4. So go ahead and take a listen. So, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Guys, this is so important to understand. I feel so many people do not understand it. I feel that if people do not get this, they are either not saved or if they are saved, they are not saved because of their false teaching. They are saved in spite of it, which is very sad because there are so many benefits that come from the cross and the gospel. And this is one of them that when we place our faith in Jesus Christ alone as the blood atonement for our sins, he takes on our sins and we take on his imputed righteousness. And that imputed righteousness is what allows us to be seen as blameless before the sight of God. Anytime we try to be a co-savior or add our own righteousness, as Galatians says, we have fallen from grace because there is nothing we can do. Of course, once we are saved, we should work for the Lord. That is our reasonable service. That is our discipleship journey. That is where we grow into the image of Jesus Christ every day. So guys, I just wanted to remind you that I will now be a panelist on Church of the Eternally Secure. You can watch that every Sunday, Wednesday, and Friday. I will be putting the links to that in the description box below. I am also going to try to put out video reminders of the day that the um, show takes place. In the description box below, you will also find Brother Luke's channel, the link to the Church of the Eternally Secure, along with other videos referenced in here. You can also find other great resources along with playlists to this series and more. If you have any questions about today's topic, the gospel message, or you just want to reach out in general, please feel free to do so. My email is revivalistforchrist.gmail.com. You can also reach out on social media at rfchrist10 on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And also, guys, if you feel so led, it would mean so much to me that if you like this video, it would really help us in the algorithm. Subscribe and hit the bell notification. That way you can be notified when new videos come out. Also, share with your network to help our ministry grow. And definitely leave a comment in the description box below because I love interacting with you guys. Until next time, remember, God can use anybody and Jesus came to save everybody. Rest in his promises and take care, family. Revivalist for Christ is much more than a podcast. It's a whole movement that seeks to unite the body of Christ to act as first responders to this lost and fallen world. We want to plant seeds that will pave the way for a great revival from the Holy Spirit while advancing the kingdom of God through the power of the gospel. If you, your church, your friends, your family, or whoever would like to get involved, please email us at revivalistforchrist at gmail.com saying you'd like to get this movement started. It's time to flood the nation with Bible-believing, Christ-following, Spirit-led servants of God.